Welcome to the Grattan Podcast channel. You're with Megan from the Grattan Institute and today we're discussing Gonski. Where to from here? At 2am on Friday 23 June, the Coalition's Education Amendment Bill, or Gonski 2.0 as it's been coined, passed through the Senate. No easy task, given our current Senate is full of crossbenchers and minor parties supposedly making political compromise harder. And while Gonski 2.0 is a step forward in school funding, this is just one aspect of improving Australia's schools. So what will likely happen now? And what should happen next? Now that the funding has been resolved, the government will move forward with the second part of its plan to review how best to spend that money. And just to confuse everybody, that part of the plan will be called the Gonski Review 2.0 because it will be led by David Gonski, who led the initial review into funding. Joining us on today's podcast is Grattan's School Education Program Director, Pete Goss, to talk through how to get the most out of Gonski and where we should focus our attention next. Welcome, Pete. Great to be back with you, Megan. So, Pete, we'll discuss later in the podcast what should happen next, now that Gonski 2.0 has passed through the Senate. But what are we likely to see happen in the coming weeks and months? What's likely to happen is some continued relitigation of what the new bill is actually doing and people sticking to their own positions without really uh, making much movement. So Labor will um, keep arguing that its model is the best, that the model that it designed six years ago is better than anything that either the Liberals could come up with today or even that Labor could come up with today and uh, they will keep promising that they can put all of this uh, different money back The Australian Education Union no doubt will uh, back that up and has promised a campaign leading up to the next election and they will continue to talk about the full Gonski. The Catholic system will continue to argue that they have been shortchanged by this new approach Um, and while there's a mechanism to check whether they have been shortchanged or not, there certainly seem to be some elements within the Catholic hierarchy that will argue that um, because they think they can win the point. Um, and they have said they, 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 they will maybe argue that through sending letters to parents, um, but potentially also by targeting some of the marginal seats, particularly in Victoria. So, you know, they're, they're play, vowing to play hardball. Um, the Greens, having said they'd listened to the bill, negotiated many of the good amendments um, and then decided that uh, they couldn't actually uh, get across the line or the government threw them under a bus under the, in the negotiations. There was a lot of complexity and, uh, and a lot of fast-moving discussions at the last minute. Need to figure out what their clean position is going forward. So there's going to be a lot of messiness on the political side and it's a real shame because, as I've talked to you about previously and uh, written on many occasions, I think this is a big step forward, but it does leave a lot of work to be done. And uh, what I would hope is that Labor and the other political parties actually accept where we are now, look at where there are genuine improvements and come up with a proper plan for how do we move forward from today, not how do we move forward from where we were six years ago. So it's not quite smooth sailing from here. (laughs) Is anything. (laughs) In a perfect world, what should happen next? What should happen next involves three elements. The first one is about the recurrent funding for individual students, the stuff that mostly we've been arguing about for the last little while, and how to flow that through to the front line. 
The second piece is to broaden the funding debate around school education to take into account capital funding and early childhood and some other things. And the third and the real hope, I think, for those of us that wanted to see an end to the school funding wars is to move beyond squabbles about money and how much and where and say what's actually going to be done with it and how do we get the most bang from each buck. But each of those things are actually pretty big, so I reckon it's kind of worth uh, delving into them and, and taking them apart. Yeah, so recurrent funding was your first point. What should happen next to flow funding through to the front line? The school funding system has many different pieces and what we've seen is a change to one of those pieces, the federal government funding approach. But in order for all of the pieces to work together, some of the other pieces will need to change, like a complex jigsaw puzzle, and they need to fit together neatly. And each of those different levels is going to have to make some changes. So let me start at the top. The federal government has put in place an approach now which says, we will be completely consistent. We will use the same funding formula. If you're a government school, you will get 20% of your target from us. If you're a non-government school, you will get 80% of your target from us. And there's a transition period to get there. That's a good start. There's still a few more things that they need to do in order to uh, make to finish off their part of the changes. The first one of those is to make sure that the formula is actually working as well as it could do. Um, and there are complexities and complexities in this. But one element that people have been very, uh, very concerned about is how we calculate how much parents can contribute if they send their kids to a non-government school. And at the moment, that's not done on their individual situation, but on the neighbourhood in which they live. And the Catholic system says this disadvantages them, and it's really important that this gets reviewed properly. Uh, there are some other pieces that will need to be reviewed over time. Now, how are they going to review this complex formula in a way that people have faith in it? They've um, made another change that they'll now have to implement, which is putting in place an independent national schools resourcing body. And that would have a number of roles, updating the formula, making sure that states put in what they say they're going to put in, because bizarrely at the moment, it's actually not easy to figure out how much each state is putting in and has that been increasing or has that been changing over time. And then where states or systemic schools get the money in a lump sum, then this independent body should be looking at how are they then distributing the money, and that's been a concern recently. So they will need to staff this body, they'll need to uh, put its uh, constitution in place and you know, get a new organisation running. Um, and when they do that, they should listen to the various stakeholders and say, how do we choose a group of experts who, if they look at it and say, health tick of approval, we can all be confident. The last thing that the Commonwealth Government will need to do um, is not on the structural side, it's on the money side, they're going to have to find $5 billion over a decade. And the reason is, um, during the negotiations with the crossbench, the time frame for Gonski 2.0 got accelerated from 10 years to six years. That cost about an extra $5 billion. And the Liberal Party has said whenever it spends any new money, then it will find offsetting measures. So now the Treasurer and the Finance Minister and others will have to go and find an offsetting measure worth about $5 billion over a decade, and that's a chunk of change. Mm. That's then what the Commonwealth will need to do, and that will kind of tidy up its part of the jigsaw puzzle. But then that needs to flow down. 
So the next level is how do the states and territories fund their own schools and fund the non-government schools in their states? And the idea here is that they will now need to do a Gonski in each state. They will now need to look at how much money they're putting in and how they're distributing that so that when you add the state and territory money together with the Commonwealth money, then over time we end up with consistent funding for every school that brings it close to its target. That sounds like a good idea, but that's actually going to be a lot of rebalancing. Because at the moment, if you're a non-government school, you're going to, in time, get 80% of your funding, of your target um, from the Commonwealth, and the state should therefore provide about 20%. That would get you up to your target. Now, at the moment, some schools would be getting 10%, some would be getting 40% for historical reasons. And the states will now need to look at that and say, well, are we going to try and get everyone to 20% or 25% or 17%? Um, but to, to do that consistently. Potentially an even bigger issue is for the government schools, where the Commonwealth will put in 20% of their target and the states are implicitly expected to put in the rest, so another 80%. They are being told in the legislation that they have to put in at least 75% and that would get the schools close. Um, but many of them are currently putting in way less than that. So in uh, New South Wales, they are currently um, putting in about 71%. So they would need to lift it a bit and similar for Queensland. Victoria is currently putting in about 66% of its target. So it's going to have to find a chunk of new money in order to lift its government schools up to the same level. Is that on average or...? That's on average, average for government schools. So they are going to both have to rebalance so they, by the time you add the state money to the, to the Commonwealth money, it is broadly fair and equitable across all schools and sectors. And some states will need to find a lot more money in order to do that. The next thing that states and territories will have to do is think about then how they distribute that money across schools. Because they'll get the Commonwealth funding in one big lump sum and they'll add theirs, but each state and territory has a slightly different view of what needs-based funding looks like. And that's quite reasonable. They know more about their schools than Canberra does. Um, and historically, they've had a lot of freedom in terms of how they allocate that money. But what the Commonwealth is saying, and I totally support them in this, is we want all states and territories to be genuinely supporting the neediest students. You might have a slightly different view of what that looks like, but it's got to be sensible and plausible. How's that going to be policed? Well, we come back to this independent schools resourcing body that we talked about earlier. And now that there is that new body in to increase the level of transparency, the states and territories will have to lift their lift their games, some of them. Some of them may be fine. What they're already doing, the independent body might look at, say, fantastic tick. Others might need to actually change their allocations. There will, in some cases, be legislative changes that come out of this. So again, in Victoria, my home state, um, a few years ago, there was a new piece of legislation put in saying that Catholic and independent school students will never get less than 25% of what a government school student will get. 
I don't fully understand the origins of that, but pieces of legislation like that will now have to be looked at again in this fresh light of saying, if the Commonwealth is behaving in this way, how do we behave so that schools end up with what they need? The next level down. So we are gradually peeling this onion, starting with the Commonwealth and the states. The next layer of the onion is, what will the systemic schools do? And that includes Catholic systemic schools, which is by far and away the largest system of schools. But there are also systems of schools of Anglican schools, Lutheran schools, Seventh-day Adventist, a number of other smaller ones. And all of them, under the, both the previous model and under this one, will get their money in a lump sum and then have the right to distribute that in the way that they see fit. Now, it's important that they do that broadly according to need, and there will now be an independent umpire who will check how they're doing it. But it's actually really valuable that they retain that right to say how they want to allocate the funding, partly because they know more about their own schools, and partly because they may want to take into account other things. The Catholic system has said in New South Wales that they want to direct some of their needs-based funding towards students who are refugees. Um, and that sounds incredibly worthwhile to make sure that refugees get the best start in their education when they first come to Australia to set them up for the long term. But there's nothing in the federal formula that talks about refugee status as a need. Um, so a local system that wants to take into that into account um, should absolutely be allowed to do so and we should welcome that. And again, historically, they've been able to get away with saying, trust me, I'll do the right thing. Well, now we're going to uh, go down the approach here. As Ronald Reagan might have said, trust but verify. <laughs> and this independent body will be verifying. And so each of those systems of schools will need to think about what are they going to do about their, their allocation approaches and review those formulae. How transparent is that information currently? Do we have any idea of how the systemic schools are currently allocating their funds? Very little. And we have some idea of where the funds are ending up because you can look on my school and you can see how much is each school getting. But when we say how are they allocating, it's not just the raw dollars, it's the dollars taking into account the needs of every school. And because every school has different, a different mix of students, every school has a different target. And so just knowing um, that if you were a school, you were getting 9,533 and I was getting 9,592 doesn't actually tell us much about whether you're getting less than me or more than me, you'd have to understand what was the mix of students in each of our schools. And that information is not available on my school. Mm. So we, we've only ever had partial information. Putting full information in the public domain sounds very attractive, but actually is so complex and confusing. Um, that's why I've said this independent body should have full information and they should do the detailed analysis and either give it a tick or say, yeah, in the right direction, but you need to keep moving. And what about at a school level? I'd imagine that's the next layer. And now we're starting to get to the real heart of the onion, right? What and what happens within each school? And uh, the first thing that will happen is that schools can finally, you know, wipe their brows and say, phew, we, we have some idea of what money we are actually going to be getting for 2018 and start to do their budget for 2018. Um, but more importantly, they should be starting to think and say, well, how do we use that money in the most efficient way possible? 
And let's hold that thought for a while because we'll come back to it on the Gonski 2.0 review because the big, the question of how do you use, how do you get the most bang for every buck is a much broader question. But that's the onion, right? You start on the outside, federal government, states, systems, individual schools, and only once the changes have flowed all the way through will we have a funding system that is aligned and consistent. So that's recurrent funding in, a, <laughs> in, an, in an onioned nutshell. Yes. <laughs> um, what about capital funding, shifting the focus to capital funding? Yes, one of the things that's happened because we've got so much emphasis on this recurrent funding, which is how much does each student get per year to, to run the school, and that is the biggest cost, is we haven't talked about some of the other costs. And the Gonski Review did actually say some things about capital funding, but it kind of gets lost in the mix. Capital funding is the money that is needed to either build new schools or new classrooms or do refurbishments or other facilities, uh, you know, let, let's not talk about, you know, Olympic-sized swimming pools, but computer labs, libraries, um, art facilities, things that are deeply important. Air conditioning in some Air conditioning, schools. yes. Um, and school halls so that you can do things jointly. These things matter. They make a difference to can you design the way that you're doing your teaching and learning in a way that is supported by the environment that you're working in. And this is a big challenge at the moment um, because the population is now growing very rapidly. So after about 20 years, where in Melbourne and Sydney, uh, the two biggest cities, actually we had a shrinking number of school students. Since 2006, we had a mini baby boom. That flowed through to primary school. That's now flowing through to high school. We're gonna have a lot more kids most places across Australia and that means we're going to need to have a different level of capital funding. Now if you're a government school the person you're going to be looking to is your state or territory government. That's clearly their responsibility but there is a challenge if you're a Catholic or an independent school who's going to fund that. So don't have any answers but that debate will need to happen. Mm. And then we need to also think beyond schooling because education is a journey. It starts before school and it often finishes after. Um, and certainly there's a, an ongoing debate around university funding and my colleague Andrew Norton is involved in that one. We do need to continue to think about how we fund vocational and education and training. Um, but actually by far the biggest gap in Australia's funding for education is in early childhood education. If you compare how much we spend to other countries around the world, we spend a whole bunch less. And what's even more problematic from my point is that the way in which that system is set up is highly regressive. And what I mean by that is that the kids who come from the most advantaged backgrounds get the most access to preschool education. The kids who need it most, those who come from the least advantaged backgrounds, get the least early childhood education or are more likely to have no early childhood education at all. And if they turn up to school having come from a disadvantaged family, not having had the benefit of early childhood education, well, they start school behind the eight ball and they too often go backwards from there. So the, the, the education funding debate does need to broaden out 
beyond schools recurrent funding but uh, but maybe those are discussions for another podcast or a, or a series of Grattan reports <laughs> are there any other areas outside of funding that we need to focus in on so now we get to the a uh, million dollar question or a uh, maybe more accurately the 40 billion dollar question <laughs> which is given the amount of money that we're putting into schools each year is a very substantial amount um in just in anyone's terms how do we get the most out of that now we talked a little bit about a gonski in each school what does it mean well schools historically year on year have tended to get similar amounts of money and they don't typically go through and say how could I arrange myself in the way that makes the most of these dollars. Most of the money is taken up by teaching staff, sometimes the schools have flexibility, but there are a lot of decisions that could be made whether you're a government school, a Catholic school or an independent school but actually a lot of the time the people who are making those decisions are not all that all that highly trained in on the financial side it's the principals of the school and mostly they've come uh, on a pathway of being teachers and educators so the schools will need to think about what do i do do i if i have some more money do i hire an extra teacher or do i get some more training in do i get a speech therapist in do I invest in some uh, links with the community to build the parental support for education? Or could I shift the way that I organise my classes? There's a whole range of, of micro discussions. And because every school is a little bit different, it is appropriate that those decisions are made close to the front line. You can't just tell all schools you should invest in X. That, that would work out poorly. The Gonski 2.0 review has been framed as the answer to getting the most bang for the buck for every dollar. But it's not clear whether one review led by the Commonwealth has any hope of actually covering all of that ground. And so what I'm hoping, and I suspect we'll talk more about this in the future and maybe another podcast because we're, we're doing some work on it at the moment. What I'm hoping is that it can frame some of the bigger challenges, which is how do we develop a school system that is fit for purpose, where teachers and principals make the decisions on the ground that are most relevant for their kids, but they are also testing, is this working? And that's the acid test, do the kids learn more? But that they're doing that in a way that is informed by what do we know from the research base? What worked at the school down the road? What didn't work at the school down the road or in another state or in another region? So at the moment, we have a very flat system, if you can imagine it, with a research base above and then nearly 10,000 schools far too often operating fairly independently. And there have been a lot of efforts to try and help schools to work together and to use that evidence base, but we have a lot further to go in that discussion. The Gonski 2.0 review, there's no way it can design what should that future ecosystem look like. But it can start to lay out the nature and the scale of the problem. And then the other thing that it will need to do is come up with a couple of concrete recommendations and say, well, no regrets if you choose to invest in X or 
change policy Y, then you're likely to improve the way that dollars are spent and to choose things that are very focused, not too, not too many different priorities, and things that the Commonwealth can actually reasonably expect of the states. Because in school education, as in other areas, there is a pretty long and sorry history of the Commonwealth meddling and trying to say the most important thing is to do smaller class sizes or whatever it was that in the end is a really inefficient way of making local decisions. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Pete. It sounds like there's still plenty of work to be done in this space. I look forward to further discussions on this podcast. Um, Perhaps in a couple of weeks' time, we can talk further about Gonski 2.0, the review. Which should get more into teaching and learning. That's where we need to be going. Yes, excellent. Um, For now, if you'd like to read more on Pete and Julie's thoughts on Gonski, head to our website where you'll find a collection of articles, grattan.edu.au. As always, stay up to date with all of Grattan's news, research and events by subscribing to our Twitter, at GrattanInst, or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and giving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.